Uh, we've turned to our study book of Acts in chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. By the way, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. Things change from this point on. You could say that there's a hinge here. If there was part 1 and part 2 of Acts, this is the beginning of part 2. Um, persecution has hit, and God's people, they're scattered And God's going to use that to bring more people to salvation. Let me tell you what the sermon's about so you can think of it as we read the text together. It's that God has strategically placed each and every one of us where we are to reach those around us, even when ministry is messy. And it is messy, isn't it? So let's look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Hear now the infallible word of God. And Saul approved of his execution, that's Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given to the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you say may may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would 
help us to pay attention, even as you cause the, those who are in Samaria to pay attention, to hear. You know, there was movement of the heart and the spirit. Move our hearts, Lord, more towards you. We pray for the help and the anointing of the spirit upon the hearer and preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. God has strategically placed us where we are to reach those around us, even when ministry is messy. You know, as our text opens, a great turning point has just happened in church history. Seemingly overnight, Christians have gone from experiencing at least the support of the populace, if not the leadership, to religiously sanctioned persecution to being hated and driven out of Jerusalem. They are now the target of persecution. It's kind of like when there's blood in the water. The sharks come in a hurry. And that's exactly what happens with the stoning of Stephen. The blood enters the water and persecution from the religious authorities becomes very serious very quickly. At the center of this was a man named Saul, or you might know him by his Greek name, Paul, who had been trained um, by the world's leading scholar, Gamaliel. Gamaliel had much zeal, but not zeal according to knowledge, just like Saul. And while in verse 1 we read that he approved of Stephen's execution, by verse 3 we see that he himself is ravaging the church and entering homes. He is dragging men and women to prison. The word ravage here uh, means to, it has connotations of brutality and sadism. He took great delight in his persecution. And he would take them to prison and where they would face trial and possible stoning, just like Stephen. You know, at first blush, this seems like an awful time in church history, doesn't it? I mean, there was a lot of pain going on here. Not, not just those who were stoned, who were just normal, everyday Christians. But think of their families, right? How many people lost breadwinners in the family? And others were forced to flee Jerusalem, leaving their livelihoods and their trades, their safety nets, leaving family and friends, and quickly carrying only a few possessions with them, heading towards uncertainty. This was a hard and awful time, but while Satan was seeking to destroy the church through persecution, God was using persecution to extend His kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Satan was trying to destroy the church through persecution, and God was using persecution to strategically locate His believers, His children, so that they in turn might reach others for Christ. We want to look at this concept and how it applies to us, that God has strategically placed us to reach those around us, even when ministry is messy. All right, so first let's see how God has strategically placed us. But this is an interesting thing. We have to go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. For in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we have God's plan for the expanding of His kingdom, of the church. We see really an outline of the book of Acts, Romans, excuse me, Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
You know, up until this point, the ministry has been contained, has been focused in Jerusalem. And some of those who are in the outlying areas have been coming to Jerusalem. And there are a lot of Christians in Jerusalem. Many commentators think there are as many as 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem alone. That's a lot of people, especially when we consider that we began the book of Acts with the company of believers of about 120. That's some pretty big um, return on uh, no investment. That's not the right word. Um, percentage is pretty high, right? The church has grown leaps and bounds. But, but there doesn't seem to be any movement towards the other areas that Jesus mentioned in his commission to his apostles. What about Judea and what about Samaria and to the ends of the earth? And so God is going to use persecution to get his people where they need to be to reach others. Don't you know that to many of those everyday Christians on the day of Stephen's death, things must have seemed to be out of control? How tragic things must have been. Behind the scenes, God was working everything according to plan. What was the immediate impact of the persecution? Look at verse 1 again. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now it's interesting. Acts 1.8 says what? You'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria. Geographically, we think of concentric circles, Judea and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Is it coincidence then that the places to which these folks scattered, that these were the very next places in Romans Acts, uh, Acts verse, chapter 1, verse 8? They would go to Judea and Samaria. There's clear application here for us, right? God has strategically placed you where you are in life, when you are in life, and what you are in life. God has strategically placed you where you are in life, when you are in life, and what you are in life. I remember growing up, I always wanted to be the next phase, the next stage, right? You know, when you're in elementary school, you want to be like those cool junior high guys. And when you're in junior high, you're just hoping to get out of junior high. And then he wanted to drive. If I could just drive, I'd be happy and life would be good. And if I could just get to college. And then you get to college and think, what was I thinking? Lord, help me. Right? If I can just get out of here and get my job. And then I had to make a pit stop through graduate school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I always wanted to be the next stage. Do you want to be the next stage? What is that next stage for you? Is it the kids being out of the house? Is it the kids being able to take care of themselves so you can sleep in on Saturday mornings? That's a good place to be. We're there. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Is it retirement? What is it? God has strategically placed you not just where you are, but what you are and when you are. This season... Right here. Have you ever seen a pointillism painting? You know what I'm talking about? From a distance, it looks like any other really fancy paintings, and you think, I should appreciate how pretty that is. And then you get closer, and you notice that they're not paint strokes. They're not, they're not paint brush strokes. They're actually individual dots that the painter has strategically located according to his intricate plan. One very famous 
example from the 1880s has almost three and a half million dots. That's a lot. It's what, two-thirds the size of Alabama if we made a dot a person? That's how God works. He has a painting of His plan. And His people are part of that plan. And He has strategically located you and me, what, when, and where we are, for a purpose as a part of His plan. Dot by dot, He has put you where you are. Whom has God strategically put around you? What groups do you have access to that others don't? Is there a cashier that you see often? Someone at Walmart you run into a lot? A mailman who comes to your house every day? Neighbors who need to be comforted? God's put you there. You are His plan. But let's be honest for a second. Sometimes it is painful how God places us. If if we look at this text, was there an application process for where these people ended up? Did these people have a say even in what was about to happen? The answer is no. Now there are some times in our lives where we plan, you know, you plan retirement, you plan to move, you plan a new job, that sort of thing. But, but how many times has the Lord used unexpected things to get you to your current season of life? Lots of times in my life. Things that I hadn't looked for and God directed me here. And, and sometimes those are painful things. What did God use here to get his believers into Judea and Samaria in order to take the gospel out? He used persecution. How uncomfortable. That God would use that in His plan to extend His church. The uncomfortable truth is that God is in the habit of using hard seasons to accomplish His desires for our life. And this is the promise of Romans 8.28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Even the hard seasons. We might say especially the hard seasons. So God has strategically placed you and me to reach those around us, even when ministry is messy. You know, but it's, it's one thing to know that you're where you need to be, or to seek to use this place for God's glory and to reach those around you. It's another thing to actually do it, isn't it? That's hard. It's a lot easier to academically say, oh, I know where this is where I'm supposed to be. And it's a whole other thing to open our mouths and talk about Jesus. But what, did the, what, did, what do we see in the text? Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now you might read this and think, I'm not a preacher. Praise the Lord. This doesn't apply to me. The word here, preaching, does not necessarily refer to the authoritative proclamation from the pulpit of God's word. It can. Rather, one great commentator says this, The word Luke employed would best be translated as spread the good news, or gospeled, or even gossiping the good news. Wouldn't it be nice if the gospel was on our lips just as easily as gossip is on our lips? Man, a lot of things would happen, wouldn't they? But notice it's not the leadership that's doing this. Those who were scattered, they weren't the leadership. They were the regular people. The leadership, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. 
Uh, there were seven original deacons here. One of them's been killed. We're about to see Philip. It only leaves six of them out of the seven that are still walking around. And six people can't reach a lot of folks. How did the gospel go forth? By God's people spreading the good news. This certainly jives with our stories. Aren't there stories, aren't there people in your conversion story that the Lord used whom you knew and not just a preacher? I think of my father. I think of my father who 32 years ago shared the gospel with me and led me to Christ. May I be as faithful as my father has been to share the good news. Well, we could spend more time there. But let's look at the text. Uh, the author Luke provides for us an example of the kingdom going forth through his people who have been scattered all around, and that was through Philip. We're going to look at Philip this week and next, Lord willing. Who was Philip? He was an evangelist. He was one of the original board of seven, the, the church, the, the first diaconate. Um, and it appears that he does not just have the role of a deacon, but also had a preaching and healing ministry as well. He travels to Samaria, to a city uh, of Samaria or a city in the region. The text is a bit ambiguous here. And this is the next stage and step in the expansion of Christ's church. Now, th this would have been uncomfortable from a traditional perspective, from an ethnic perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. So much so that people would walk around, add days to their journey to go around Samaria to get somewhere on the other side. That's how much they hated them. There was no love lost. And the Samaritans were kind of half-breeds, right? They, they were half-Jew and half-other. Not just bloodline. Blood doesn't, doesn't really matter when it comes to salvation. But what I mean by that is religiously. They had their own temple. In Mount Gerizim, but they said they followed the first five books of the Old Testament. Only the first five. They were looking for their own version of the Messiah. And they had all these strange practices mixed in as well. It, it was a strange situation. There was a lot of animosity between the two. And, and yet, where does Philip go? He goes to a place that is hated. Isn't it just like God? Isn't it just like God that the next place would be amongst a people who had been marginalized and hated, who needed the joy of salvation? And this is where he sends Philip. Much like the tax collectors and sinners who have been saved in Christ's earthly ministry, here we see a whole people group who were in a worse category, at least seen by the Jews, right? Receiving the joy of salvation. Praise be to God. So Philip the evangelist goes to Samaria, not by accident, according to God's plan, and proclaims the kingdom of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love what happens here. Look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Did you catch that? They paid attention to what was being said. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, can cause us to pay attention to the proclamation of the Word of God. You know, our hearts are um, often dull. And we need the Holy Spirit to anoint us that we might hear. And not just hear with our ears, but hear with our hearts. And this is what happened. The Lord blessed the going out of His Word. And many people became believers. We see the result in verse 12. 
And when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A lot of folks became believers. Praise be to God. There was revival. You know, it's one thing to know that we are and where we are when we are and uh, what we are. That those are where God has us, right? It's another thing to be faithful, to open our mouths and talk about the Lord and seek to use those situations for the reaching of others. And I don't know about you, but I think in my life, oftentimes, it's because I wonder if evangelism really works. That's a strange thing for preachers to say, right? I mean, I believe it works academically, and I've seen it work. I've led folks to the Lord. But I imagine if we believed it worked, of sharing the good news, of telling people about salvation in Christ, then I bet we would do it more often. The reason we cash our checks when we get paid is because we believe that process works. The reason why we pay our bills is because we believe that that process works too. I wonder, do we, do we believe that evangelism works? That sharing the love of Jesus? I think we should prayerfully expect there to be conversions when we share the good news of Jesus. It is God's appointed means by which men and women, boys and girls, are called to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And, and how does He do it? He does it through you and me, whom He has strategically placed that we might reach those around them. Even when it is messy. Even when it is messy. I, I remember when I was in high school, um, we had our first contemporary Christian radio station come to Montgomery. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's a great radio station. Um, <laughs> obviously, right? Um, and I wanted to go work for them. And I told my youth director, I said, I want to go work for them. And he said, why? I said, well, it's a Christian workplace. It's just going to be fantastic. You know, we're just going to you know, sing songs all day. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah. Um, and he took me aside and said, Parker, let's, let's have a little chat. Like, life is messy. You know, loving folks is messy, isn't it? Why is that? Because I'm messy. We all have our messes. Now in the South, we have learned well to hide those messes. Right? Especially in the church, we would say. Especially in the church. I mean, what if people learned that I was struggling? Or I was having a hard time? Or I had doubts? That's why we have each other. We're meant to do this thing together. But let's be clear, it's messy. Because I'm messy. And you're messy. Life and ministry, they're messy. Even when it's successful. I remember at uh, university, I went to the University of Alabama, and I was deeply involved with Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, which is the campus ministry of our, uh, of our denomination. It's a great ministry. Now, from a 30,000-foot view, this was a very successful ministry. Uh, Marshall Brown was the pastor while I was there. He came in. I got there in his second year. When I started his second year, 
We had 30 people come into a large group. By the end of the year, we had 60. By the end of the next year, we had 200. Uh, by the time I graduated, it was people were sitting in the aisles in a large auditorium. I mean, the, the Lord did great things. People, droves of people came to know Christ. Even more were, were grown uh, deeply in the Word of God. Out of the five roommates that I had involved in RUF, two, two are deacons now in PCA churches. One is deeply involved at a Baptist church, and two of us are PCA elders. The Lord did great things through RUF. And it was messy. Let me tell you how messy it was. The campus minister, Marshall Brown, used to say that every year they'd go to summer training and they'd sit around and, sh- and share horror stories. That's what preachers do when they get together. And, uh, and he would always go last. There were 130 campus ministers at the time. And he would always go last. Because he always had the worst stories. <laughs> or the best stories. How do you say that, right? Um, Alabama is a, University of Alabama is a um, fairly ungodly place. Not that every other university is wonderful. But the culture there is just not good. Uh, I'll say that recorded on, on, telev- I mean, on the Facebook. Don't send your children to, the, to Alabama. Don't do it. I want my son to be an Auburn fan and uh, go to Auburn if he has to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yet, it was a deeply successful ministry. Ministry is messy. And that's okay, because we're messy. And Jesus isn't scared by the messiness. He saved you. He saved me despite the messiness. And that's what we have in this text. The end of this text is really messy. See, there was this man named Simon the Magician. And at first blush, Simon the Magician looks like one of those celebrity conversions that you're so excited about. You know, we've had some of those lately. Uh, Kanye West, do you know this name? A, A rapper of terrible lyrics for many years. Now as a professing believer in Christ, and it really does appear that it's a legitimate conversion. I mean, he seems to be walking with Jesus. Justin Bieber, do you know this name? Gone crazy. And he loves Jesus. And he's got more tattoos than you can shake a stick at, and some of them are not always appropriate, and he loves the Lord. It's one of those wonderful stories. This one's not one of them. Simon the Magician, at first blush, is a believer. He responds to the preaching of the Word. Now, now he, at first, before, he was this, um, well, he was a sorcerer. The text says he was a magician, but you have to understand that magicians in those days weren't like pulling a rabbit out of your hat. Magicians in those days were like um, seeking to conjure dead people kind of level of stuff. This was satanic sorcery level stuff, but it was bathed in religious terms, so much so that he called himself great, Perhaps even calling himself a Messiah or even the manifestation of God. Now, showing up was Philip. And Philip was doing many signs and wonders. And he saw this and he was amazed because he understood signs and wonders because he tried to do them all the time. And by the way, just like Pharaoh's magicians were able to do some of the things that Moses did, he really did things. And he believed He believed and he was baptized. Now, something interesting happens in our text. Peter and John come down from Jerusalem. They come down from Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out yet. 
Now, when we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. It is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we become believers when He changes our hearts and makes us new and makes us, calls us to call upon the name of the Lord. And yet, in the book of Acts, we see in a couple different places where, especially when they go to the next stage, or the next place, God delays the pouring out of the Spirit from faith and conversion. Now, that is not the normal way it happens. It is likely that God did these in these two or three different places so that people would know that the Samaritans were fully believers just like the Jews were who had called on the name of Christ, right? Just like the Jews had experienced Pentecost in Jerusalem, these were many Pentecosts where the apostles laid hands on them. They received the same Holy Spirit, the same manifestation of the Spirit, just like the Jews had in Jerusalem. It's an important event, but it's not the normal event. So they come down, they lay on hands, and Simon the magician sees Peter and John do this, and he wants that. What does he want? He wants the power to do this. And so he offers them money. Hey, let me buy that. Why would he do that? Well, magicians in those days would buy ceremonies and incantations from other magicians. And so he sees this and he's like, man, these are some really good magicians. And what does Peter say? Now the ESV cleans it up. The text literally says, to hell with you and your money. That's what it says. And he says, your heart is not right with God. He had equated the Holy Spirit with satanic sorcery. And he says, repent if possible. What's the if possible here? Well, the if possible is not if God can forgive. He can forgive. If possible is if you can repent. And it's interesting, the text leaves us, the, the, uh, Luke leaves us wondering, we don't know what he did. He, we don't know if he repented and asked for forgiveness. Because all he does is ask Peter to pray for him, saying, hey, I don't want any of this stuff to happen to me. Pray that that doesn't happen. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He's not in dust and ashes. He doesn't rip his clothes. Ministry is messy. And it sure was messy here. Because on the outside, it looked like this was a celebrity conversion. And in the end, it ended up being a flash in the pan. Not the real thing. My friends, as we engage in ministry... As we love those around us, it's going to be messy. And it's going to require more from us than we ever could, could think we had in us. It's going to require more of putting to death our own sin and our own pride and our own selfishness more than we ever could imagine. It's going to inconvenience us. And that's how God reaches people. You, let me share just very personally my prayer when I don't want to be inconvenienced. Philippians chapter 2, we read this. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not that I just have to love people, but I have to count them more significant than myself. You think I can do that very easily? No. So as we go forth, strategically located to reach those around us through this ministry that is messy, 
We do so not in our own strength. We do so in the strength of Jesus who laid down his life for us. You want to talk about messy ministry. His was perfect. The people who he was ministering to, they sure are messy. Every one of us. And we yearn for the day where the messiness is gone. When Christ comes again and all our mess is taken care of. No more temptation, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more failures, no more sinful hearts. And we dwell with God forever. May that day come soon. Let's pray. So Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see those around us who need to hear the word of God, who need to be loved on and ministered to. We thank you that you, O Christ, would come. You would condescend, that you would take on flesh. And that you would die for us. O Lord, that we would lay down our lives for others. Lord, help us to love well, even as we have been loved. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.